0: You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett.
1: Welcome to Future Proof Workplace,
2: this is Linda Sharkey and how are you Morag? I am delightful. I am just back from a week's vacation, so I can definitely say I am raring to go and ready for whatever the future of this week holds for me. Yes, and I hope it's all
1: good things. I hope it's exciting things, and we're doing all sorts of technological stuff today, and some of it works, some of it doesn't, and here's (laughs) great. When it does work, it's fabulous, but when it doesn't work, it's a whole other ball of wax. It's really Yes, indeed. So... Uh, welcome back. Um, Thank you. So, you know, as you know, I was at the uh, Thinkers 50 Gala this uh, last year. It was a great, great event and uh, met so many fabulous people, many of whom I've had known for years, which was very exciting. And I had the distinct pleasure of running into Tom Peters. And I was so excited because, you know, he wrote um uh, in search of excellence, and he did a lot of work with uh, Hewlett Packard, where, as you know, Morag, I I uh, worked for a number of years, and so we had this great opportunity to compare notes and just share insights and all that stuff. And I said, Tom, would you be on our show? And I was so excited because he said yes, which was great. So, with um, now much, uh, not much more ado. Let me introduce the preeminent Tom Peters. I'm just so excited. Uh, like I said, he wrote, uh, he's an author, consultant, uh, professor at, at uh, Stanford University, did a lot of consulting. It still does a lot of consulting with major companies. And what particularly resonated with me uh, from Tom is that <laughs> he kept saying, as you and I say, Morag, that, yeah, there's a digital revolution out there but it's driving a human revolution. And if we think, you know, that that human side of work is going to go away, we've got another thing coming. Mm-hmm. So, Tom, thank you so much for joining our show.
3: I am delighted to be here, but I have to first, you know, I've got to get personal. Where were you on vacation, Morek? I need yeah. to know.
2: Ah, I was in Barcelona in Spain. It was my first trip to Spain, despite the accent, and had a beautiful week. Um, just huh. walking around and soaking up the history.
3: Brilliant. I've been there a few times, and I would agree with you. It's an absolutely lovely place, except I have problems now you're you're <laughs> you're halfway in between, I think as as a native Brit. They don't sit down for dinner until about ten pm. and I have some uh, problems correct. with that.
2: Eight. Yes. Yeah, it's not the U.S. standard of 6 p.m. by Yeah, well, the
3: night. U.S. is 6 p.m. The Brits are probably, what, 7.15? 7 15. Seven-ish, yeah.
2: But yeah. yeah, they go all in for a 9 o'clock. It's just starting to get busy. 10 is peak time. A-
3: abso- oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, Tom, you've got a new book,
1: The Excellence Dividend, a meeting the tech tide with the work that wows and jobs that last. Now, tell us a little bit about this this book.
3: I don't have to because you just did. When you did your introduction uh, a couple of minutes ago, you said the key words. Uh, There is no question that we are being overwhelmed by technology transformation, disruption, whatever your favorite word du jour is. On the other side of the coin, I really believe that the human differences will drive success. Both for individuals and for organizations, corporations, and so on. It's the. Can Can I tell you a story, even though it'll take a couple Ooh, minutes? Is love that stories.
2: <laughs> yes, okay. do it.
3: Okay. So, I am fly. I am a fan of Southwest Airlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I did a television show on their founder Herb Kelleher, et cetera, et cetera. So I am flying from Albany, New York, to Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Washington, International, on a Southwest flight. I am at the gate. Mm -hmm. Uh, As usual, at the gate, sorry to say, there are half a dozen people in wheelchairs. Uh, The the plane on which the, the, the pilot was flying came in a little bit late, so there was that tension. And the pilot is coming toward the gate. You have the visual in mind?
1: Yeah, like it.
3: The pilot goes to the first wheelchair and says to the woman in the wheelchair, would you mind if I took you in your wheelchair down the jetway to the plane? I have been on 9,000 flight legs, and I have never ever, ever seen anything like that. And, you know, listening to your introduction and so on, and knowing a teeny bit about who you all are, I mean, that to me is excellence. That to me is differentiation. And, you know, on top of that, in the new book, I've got a, a section on hiring and uh, Colleen Barrett, who I believe started as a secretary, became the president of Southwest. And somebody asked her, how does Southwest hire? And she said, we look for listening, caring, smiling, saying thank you, and being warm. And that holds as much for the pilots and mechanics as it does for the flight attendants or the people at the gates. And and that's, I so firmly believe, I mean, maybe 30 years from now when ai is truly you know made it into everything maybe it'll be different but i'm not that worried about the next 30 years i mean partially because of my age it's how do we get through the next year the next 5 years the next 10 years and for that period of time i i want to fly in an airline you know i'm going to be in a wheelchair one of these days but i don't want to be wheeled down the jetway by a pilot uh-huh. and, and, and it's just yes i i'm sorry something weird about me stuff like that is what really makes me go omg i just can't believe it and i can't believe usually how trivial as a physical act it is, but how you remember such things for a lifetime as a human being. I'll remember that to my last breath.
2: Yes. The the fact that it is so uncommon that it stands out. And the the thing about Southwest is it's that clear purpose, that human connection, the making it personal that has really made them stand head and shoulders against any industry, but particularly their competitors.
3: Absolutely. And, And again, to me, the, the 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 double win, is and I said this before, so I'm repeating myself, is mechanics pilots. Mm-hmm. same measure. You know that mm-hmm. same same section on hiring that I've got, I quote the the CEO of a of a modest sized pharmaceutical company, and pharmaceuticals and happy smiling faces unfortunately, aren't always the images that come to our mind. And he says, we only hire nice people. And I interview you, and you have got the most incredible PhD in some kind of exotic chemical science from Oxford or MIT or IIT in India, and it blows, knocks my socks off. But once you and I have finished talking, you have got to do what he says, run the gauntlet. And that means you'll talk for relatively short conversations with 10 or 15 people from the receptionist to the logistics vice president. And every one of those people, any, sorry, any one of those people can veto your employment. And his logic is he says, I think cultures are so fragile and brittle that we cannot afford to have one bad apple in the basket. 100%. And I just, again, I I love the idea that, and and again, as he and he specifically says, he says, you know, more ag is great, but the reality is there are a lot of great scientists out there. So why should we hire one who's not nice? Right.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly. I couldn't agree with you more. And we talk about that, Tom, and in our book, we, you know, Hire no bad apples, and if you have them, get rid of them. And there's so many leaders that will not do that,
3: that they yeah. think
1: that they're going to lose some of this brilliance. And, in fact, what they do is they create this toxic culture, to your point.
3: No, absolutely. Uh, if if you're willing to give me my head again, I'm going to take a minute to read something. If absolutely. May I do that? This is uh, your buddy well, the bad the bad news is this isn't in my book because <laughs> oh, okay. I found it I found it after the book it had been written. Then definitely tell us this story. I definitely will tell you. And maybe I'll you know buy a big stapler and staple it to every copy of the book before it goes in the marketplace. It's an article from The Washington Post. Uh, and the author is Valerie Strauss, and the title is "The Surprising Thing Google Learned About Its Employees and What It Means for Today's Students." Project Oxygen, data from founding until founding in 1998 to 2013, shocked everyone at Google by concluding that among the eight most important qualities of Google's top employees, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, STEM expertise comes in dead last. Wow, seven top characteristics are all soft skills. Being a good coach, communicating and listening well, possessing insights into others, including others' different values and points of view, having empathy toward and being supportive of one's colleagues, being a good critical thinker and problem solver, and being able to make connections across complex ideas. Those ideas sound more like what it takes to be an English or theater major than to be a programmer. And I love it. I just, I, you know, I, I was, when I read the thing, I was by myself in my room and I sat there like a complete idiot applauding for about five minutes.
1: Yeah. I, I agree with it more. I was just with a Columbus. Have you ever heard, have you ever heard of them, Tom? They're really fabulous. They're a theater group and they come in and they work with leaders around how to, and they just show how leadership through improvisation. I mean, that's not, that's sort of not totally new, but they take you through these exercises where you begin to see how leadership passes from people to another person and and that people kind of do this naturally. And you have to tap into that if you want to have the workplace that's going to thrive today. It's really fascinating.
3: I just, I love that. I love that. Years ago in my training company, uh, we gave some, this was the San Francisco Bay Area, Palo Alto. We gave a donation to Shakespeare in the Park Oh, which yeah. was the San Francisco thing. And so the person who ran it called me and said, wow, that was really nice. Would you like one of our team to come down and do a, do a half day's improv work with your team? And so, you know, I started drooling on the spot and it's exactly <laughs> what you said. They came down and they were very good at what they did and they weren't, a, you know, formally trainers, but they knew how to interact with people. And, you know, I had some old pros who'd been around the... The uh, you know the the tracks a lot of times and they were just blown away by it. It was just a different way to look at the world.
2: So, Tom, I'm curious. I mean, we've been in the business, you and I and Linda, for a number of years. We are passionate about the people side and how that drives the business results. Why is it different? To my mind, this my, I sense a willingness now to acknowledge that that might have a grain of truth to it. So what's different now in the 21st century to 5, 10 years ago, 20 years ago in the 20th century, where it was, no, no, numbers first?
3: Um, well, which is to your credit. You're a little bit more optimistic than I am. I I still get discouraged at the number of people who don't put this first. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah
1: agree
3: with you. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd i love to sign off. Um, <laughs> that's a tough question because I'm a professional pessimist on this dimension.
2: <laughs> I'll be the glass half full then. Yeah. So I realize there's a long way to go. But yeah. at least people are willing to have the conversation yeah, versus yeah. just dismiss it outright as just the soft oh, stuff.
3: I, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. By the way, I will sign the two of you up for my unofficial campaign, <laughs> and that is we are going to find business school deans who mm-hmm. will change the title of their degree from Master of Business Administration
2: yeah. to
3: Master of Business Arts.
2: You know what, Borak?
3: I've got to tell you a story. I have to tell you a
2: story. Tell me a story.
3: <laughs> well, because. You're you are a are you a British citizen or are you a I double am. citizen?
2: I am a double, so it depends on double. which way I'm going. But yes. Yeah.
3: Anyway, so I come over to the UK with some degree of regularity, and I love doing some work with a London-based business school. Um, called Cass Business School. And I love it because it has real people. You know, it's employees who want to get a degree and so on. And also it has a woman, Dean Marianne Lewis, who I think is fabulous. And for about two or three years, I would come over and I would get invited to Oxford, and I would say, no, I don't want to spend time going up to Oxford and talking to a bunch of spoiled brats, which is <laughs> totally unfair. So I finally go to Oxford, and I meet the dean. I just love this so much. I hope you do. Whose name is Peter Tofano. And do you know what? I mean, first of all, Oxford has never historically liked having a business school. I mean, you have Said Business School. There was a lot of money that came to the school, but they've never felt comfortable. But this dean, Peter Tofano, is trying with some significant success to really integrate Said Business School into that Amazing human institution called Oxford University. He's got, he's got, you know, he's got professors who are teaching classes in the regular university. He's got philosophers and the historians giving lectures at the business school. He is introducing the the some of the attributes of Oxford. His MBA kids have got to wear coats and ties or whatever the formal stuff is for dinners. They go to the Oxford ceremonies and he is, he's essentially giving them a heavy dose of humanity, civilization and the liberal arts. And I almost gave him a public hug. I was so turned on by that.
1: Yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. You know, Tom, we've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we want to talk more about your book and the hiring practices and, you know, what you're talking about in terms of customers and all of those great things. So stay with us. We're talking to the absolutely outstanding Tom Peters original book in search of excellence, and uh, now got a new book coming out. So stay with us.
0: Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, five years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought out keynote speakers, leadership development, and organization experts, and they can help you future proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit FutureProofWorkplace.com.
1: Welcome back. Thanks for listening. You're joining me and uh, my co-host, Morag Barrett. And we're talking to Tom Peters, who's got a new book coming out, The Excellence Dividend, Meeting Tech Tide with uh, the Wows uh, and <clears throat> Jobs That Last. Great title. I really love that title. Tom, when is that book coming out?
3: Tomorrow. So glad you asked. It's coming out on April the 3rd.
2: Which will oh. be tomorrow.
3: <laughs> that is tomorrow. Absolutely. Wow. So I'm so excited. I can't see straight. I'm more excited than I've been in years.
1: That's great. So you talk about in the book and, you know, you, you've just sort of given us a little highlights of it about, you know, how do you hire for uh, today's world? And so can you give us a little snippet on that?
3: Uh, yeah. I'm, i you know, we've, we've alluded to it in our discussion so far and, What I'm really arguing, a la the Southwest story of listening, caring, smiling, saying thank you and being warm, is that while the technical skills are important, we really need to put the softer skills right at the top of the list. Uh, And that's a hard sell, frankly. Uh, it's a hard sell in a lot of departments. It's even a hard sell in human resources departments, frankly. Uh, but I, you know, one of the biggest problems I have is I don't know how to make this complicated. (laughs) No, I really, here's a, here's a wonderful little story that's reported in the book and I'm incredibly embarrassed that I don't remember the name of the, of the book from which this comes. But this author uh, was with a client and the client was either having a quarterly or an annual review. And people got up to review their results and it was fabulous training and fabulous people stuff and all these things that I think the three of us care about a lot. And the author... Turned to the CEO and said, why am I hearing all these stories relative to what you've done, but other people don't focus on it? CEOs and the CEO's answer, which was just mind boggling, but maybe true. He said, I think they're embarrassed to say that the soft stuff works. You know, they've they've been so focused on the shareholder value, the market share, the competitive analysis, the financial stuff, that it feels squishy-gushy to them to try to deal with these softer issues. And yet, they are at the center of a great culture. They are at the center, in my opinion, of superb performance.
1: Wow. So, the other thing that... um I wanted to, to uh, ask you about, Tom, was um, I'm floundering around here for a minute, but uh, what should leaders be doing now in light of the coming, as you call it, you know, the tech tsunami? I love that word. We actually use that too. But so what, how do you develop these skills? You know, because frankly, it's a whole lot easier to develop technical skills than it is some of these softer skills. And we know that. And then, how do, what, what do leaders do in, this, in these kinds of circumstances?
3: Well, so I'm going to start with where we left off with the hiring thing. Uh, the book, despite the fact its relative length, is limited. Uh, there are 15 chapters. There is a section on people. And in that section, I broke out training as a separate chapter. And I believe, particularly in the face of the technology change, that training is investment number one. The way that we deal with this change is to find the most exceptional people that we can find focusing, as we've said, on these softer traits, and then train, 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 train. People development becomes the strategic center of the enterprise. I have this little section where I, that I call gambling man, and I have four bets, and I won't waste my time. Well, the four bets are if you talk to the average CEO, he would see training as an expense, not an investment. If you sat down for a 45-minute tour d'horizon with the CEO of a big company, I will bet you a large sum of money that in those 45 minutes, he never talks about training. Yeah, he was- talks about his gazillion-dollar ISIT investment that they're making in 2018, but not the development of people. And you know, at some level, and I'm not a judge or a congressman, I think it's immoral and it ought to be illegal. Uh, You know, I do this section and it's, this is an indirect way of talking about what you're saying. And, you know, I'm not a very religious person, or if I am, it's kind of lowercase R, not uppercase R, but I think this change means, and I almost have to speak in a low voice because I, I just feel so strongly, there is a new moral, number one, responsibility among business leaders. First of all, most of our fellow citizens spend the majority of their life working in business organizations. Not giants, most of them are smaller, but in business organizations. As somebody said, business is not part of the community, business is the community. Hence, the community's human development potential is a function of what happens in the workplace. And and I, I think there is a moral, and absolutely, I know I repeat myself, and I'm hoping by saying it a hundred times, maybe somebody will listen, a moral <laughs> responsibility to develop people and help them prepare for a future that's going to be very different. If I go to work for you guys, and I work for you for only two months on a project, I think you have a responsibility for making sure that at the end of those two months, I am better prepared for life in the decade ahead than I was before I came to work with you on a project. And and I'm just, you know, hell on wheels about that topic.
2: So that's the number one responsibility, helping the lifelong learning by uh, by the sound of things is how I could summarize that. One of the things you talk about is you have an obsession with listening, so, why are you so passionate about that particular topic, and how does that link to building the citizens for today and the future?
3: Um, maybe because I'm not the world's greatest listener. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I oh, did
1: we I think, lose you? Tom?
3: Oh. No, no, you didn't lose me at all. I'm trying to not give an answer that's just a run, running at the mouth, flippant answer. <laughs> uh, I. Believe one of the things that well, I'm, again, I'm, try, I'm trying to I'm trying to do this right. My favorite management book in a long, long time is a book with a one-word title, and the term is the word is quiet, and the author oh. is Susan Cain.
2: Cain, yes.
3: Susan changed my life. She changed my life in part because she made me feel like the biggest idiot who ever walked the face of the earth, which I told her when I saw her. And Susan tells us that all the research says that we love people who talk a lot, we love people who are loud, we shortchange the introverts, and fundamentally all the research shows that introverts on a team tend to be more thoughtful, tend to listen better, Tend to think before they open their mouths, uh, and and I think in a in this era where change is so significant, every minute has to be a learning experience. Every minute has to be absorbing as much as you possibly can as a leader from the people with whom you are working, and and so I suggest in the book that. Core value number one of the enterprise should be effective listening. I think we should train effective listening. I will certainly agree that instinctively maybe X is better than Y. And one of the other areas, as you know, where I am passionate is gender differences. Mm -hmm. And the scientific research, the neurobiological research says that women are better listeners than men. On the other hand, I think we can train people to get a lot better than they are. And I think that ought to, I think every person in the organization should take a single training course, and everyone ought to take a refresher listening course at least every couple of years. Uh, so it's strategic necessity for me. And again, I, mean, I want to tie something funny to that. I was at dinner and there was this guy who's really a big deal in the investment world. It wasn't Buffett, but it was a Buffett-like person. And he turned to me at one point in the dinner and he said, what do you think the number one problem is with CEOs? And being a smart aleck, I said, well, I can think of 50, but I can't think of one. And he (laughs) said, they don't read enough. And so reading, studying, listening. It's all about absorbing information and knowledge in the midst of this incredible change. And, you know, it's not about talking ourselves to death. It's about listening as hard as we can in every context. And we know it's true. Uh, you know, you guys work with customer service. There's a wonderful line. Oh God. What? Oh, a wonderful line that I can't, can't, oh, yeah, it was by a woman who headed the Guardian media group in the US. And it's just a one liner. She said, If you don't listen, you don't sell anything. And uh, there's another one liner from our former Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, that I love. And this is just a winner The best way to persuade someone is with your ears. And, you know, to me, that's a knock your socks off line. But, uh, I think I think a, a literal strategic commitment to listening is incredibly important. I have a whole chapter on listening.
2: So give I mean, us one some- tip, Tom, as we go to break, because uh, by nature of who you are, people want to hear from you, which means you get to do a lot of talking. So how? What's one tip that you have found that works for you that helps you with your own listening?
3: Well, I'll give you two tips. One of them came in in a, in a Twitter conversation I was happening and having And one woman who is a manager said, every time I go into a meeting, I write, listen on my hand. And, you know, that's not a bad idea at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, for example, I'm going to give a speech to 600 people in an auditorium and it's, an early morning speech at eight o'clock. Wow. I always go down to the conference room at seven o'clock and I Mm -hmm. go down at seven o'clock so I can have breakfast with the people who are going to be in the audience, stand up breakfast. I wander around the room. As you know, they're always early birds Mm -hmm. and I just chat and have next door neighbor conversations and listen to what's on their mind. I get more out of that 45 minutes of wandering about having casual conversations than I do out of the hundreds of hours I spent formally preparing for the event. And it's just taking the pulse, being among people, listening to people, reading their body language. uh, That's that's critical to me. I, I couldn't give a speech without it. I would Feel, I would feel like I was simply talking to a bunch of strangers. Uh-huh. I, want, I, want, I want everybody in an audience, and I don't mean this in some horrible or silly way, I want them to be my colleagues for that hour. You know, we're having a peer to peer discussion. You said I speak and give speeches. I hope that I don't give speeches. I hope I have conversations, conversations. with people.
2: I love it. Thank you. We're going to go to break. You're listening to the Future Proof Workplace Radio Show with Dr. Linda Sharkey and myself, Morag Barrett. Our fabulous guest this week is Tom Peters. Stay with us. I'd love to explore more about your comment there, Tom, and other passion around gender and diversity.
0: We all know that leaders who build talent, care about their people, and create healthy organizations are the people that others want to work for and with. Raise your own bar and future-proof your organization with The Future-Proof Workplace. Whether you're a CEO, manager, or just trying to survive the chaos, The Future-Proof Workplace is your wake-up call because, let's face it, the future is now. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you start future-proofing your organization. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Future Proof Workplace, and thanks for joining us this week. And my co-host, uh, Morag Barrett. We're talking to Tom Peters, whose new book comes out tomorrow, The Excellence Dividend, Meeting Tech Tide, uh work that, that wows and jobs that last. Uh, if you don't haven't lined up for a copy, you probably want to do that. Tom, when we went to break, we were talking about your passion around diversity. Tell tell us what your thoughts are and, and, and why you're so passionate about that
3: issue. Well, gender diversity for me, and this goes back to 1996, 22 years now, is Social justice issues are important, incredibly important. They're a big part of my private life. But when I talk about gender, I talk about gender in terms of cold, calculating business performance. And the best reason to have, for example, gender balance in an organization is that it is a damned profitable thing to do. But let me talk to you about two halves of the story. The evidence increases by the day, and it is pretty darned unmistakable. I have a a substantial uh, piece of it reported in the new book. Women are better leaders, period. One study done by my old employer, McKinsey and Company, who know their way around analytics for sure, said that companies... With boards of directors with gender balance, among many other things, have 56% higher operating profits than do companies without gender balance. That is one heck of a number, to put it mildly. A Harvard Business Review study, a recent one, showed that of the 16 principal traits associated with leadership effectiveness, women outscore men on 12 of the 16. It almost gets to the point of being ridiculous. Research shows that women are better negotiators than men to a significant extent back to our prior point because they listen better. Women are better salespeople than men because they listen better. Women are better investors There's a wonderful book, and it's worth buying just for the title. It's written by a motley fool person, Lou Ann Lofton, and the title of the book is Warren Buffett Invests Like a Girl and Why You Should Too. And again, it's not quite so much testosterone, really thinking before you place your bet, and so on. So step number one in this thing, I think the evidence is clear that women are better leaders, but let's forget about that. They sure as heck at the very least are as good leaders. So that's argument number one. Argument number two is a pure commercial argument. Women buy the great, great, great majority of goods and services. Maybe not surprising, the research shows that women make about 85% of consumer purchases. What interests me on top of that is that in the United States, and this may not be true worldwide, over 50% of professional purchasing officers are women in the U.S., which is to say that a woman is more likely than a man to issue the request for proposal for a $2 billion five-year IS investment, as -hmm. she is to decide where where the family vacation is gonna be. So women buy the commercial goods, women buy the retail goods, women show up as better leaders. I make a big point, because I don't wanna be, you know, shot in the alleyway, that I am not suggesting that we fire all male leaders, but I am suggesting, and I use pretty strong language, that if you do not have gender balance, at least right down the center of the line, and I don't mean 35% or three board members out of 12, if you have real, if you do not have real gender balance, you are stupid. (laughs)
2: <laughs> so the numbers are compelling, Tom. And in the UK, I've been reading the headlines around the uh, gender pay gap uh, data that's having to be published by all organizations. And uh, I think there's some red faces. The numbers are compelling, and yet nothing's changed. I, so why the disconnect?
3: Yeah. Uh, I don't have a good answer. I really don't have a good answer for that. I do it is completely incomprehensible to me. There are certainly examples of companies that do it and it pays off in performance. uh, But most of them don't. And most of them don't even in areas like consumer goods. Uh, I mean, I'm an old man, so I haven't got that many years, but I intend to keep yelling about this until my last breath. And I'm so, make so much of an effort to say I'm not, doing this because of social justice. I'm doing it because it's good business.
2: Business,
3: Uh, You know, if the, if it's good social justice, fabulous, that's the icing on the cake. It's actually the cake in terms of my personal beliefs, but do it for practical reasons. I don't know why. Um, I don't know why that's the case. It's not quite all lean in as uh, you know, what's her name? Cheryl, Cheryl Sandberg says that it is. That's helpful. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, my smart aleck answer, I don't know why men are such idiots.
1: Um, yeah, prop uh, <laughs> I I <laughs> uh-huh.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, prop, prob, probably so. Uh I mean, I, you know, relative to what you all are doing, I mean, my argument would be, I don't know the answer to why we're not doing it, but I do know if I was doing what you were doing and it's harder for women to be, you know nasty and rude about it this than it is for me, is it is a fabulous strategy for your clients to consider as a strategy, not as a quote unquote good thing, but as a mm-hmm. strategic initiative. You know, in my world, we're gonna vault listening to the top of the investment list. We are going to we are going to vault complete gender gender equity in top jobs. I agree with the pay part too, but I want positions filled. Uh, and I think I would, I would, I mean, I know you've got to have business and you got to get paid at the end of the day. I would make that a central part of my consulting and training activities. If I had an organization that did something like that, of course I'm lucky and I've seen that for 20 years, I can get away with murder. I can stand in front of a thousand men and call them idiots. You would have some problems with that. Uh, And I enjoy calling them idiots and you know, the key in speech giving is first you make them smile and then you tell them what idiots they are.
2: Yeah, I'll try it with my accent, but that brings me to the point, you know, if I'm standing in front of essentially my customers, you've used the phrase, the customer comes second. So tell us more about what's the, the meaning behind the customer comes second.
3: Well, I'll use for starters, the corny language I use at one place in the book and my apologies particularly to a Brit who respects the English language far more than any American does. Uh, But my one liner is, if you want to wow the customer, first, you must wow the people who wow the customer. You know, that's for starters. John DeJulius, who has a bunch of uh, spas and health clubs, his line, which I just adore, is your customers will never be any happier than your people. And I think that's, you know, right on the money. But there's another one and people, you know, I've been doing interviews and people seem to pick up on this in the book, which is fascinating because it's a little thing. There's an odd term and it's called hostmanship. H-O-S-T-M-A-N-S-H-I-P. A couple of gurus, Swedish gurus, decided to put their money where their mouth was and they bought a hotel.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And the first thing they did, and this okay. is an intriguing use of, of of language, they did what they called a consideration renovation. The hostmanship idea means that you, as the leader, are hosting your employees. So here's a consideration uh, renovation. You buy a new hotel. What do you do if you're a normal hotel owner? You spend some money and you get better bed linens and you paint up stuff that's not right and you do a whole bunch of things that the guest will see, right? That's the standard procedure. They said, no, we're going in the opposite direction. The first thing we're going to do is better facilities for employees. We're going to have a massage therapist for our employees because it's hard work in the hotel. Better uniforms, better spaces. Uh, you know, and, and, they, and they say they, it, it, it's intriguing use of language. Mm-hmm. They say, where would you rather stay? At a hotel where the CEO has some written down credo. That says the customer comes first, or at a hotel where the staff were happy, productive, and growing people. And the answer is, if you're at all smart, is you want the latter. And so, you know, the the idea is that, I mean, to me, it's again, it's it's something that doesn't require an engineering degree, which which I happen to have. And that is if we're interested in satisfying the customer, first, we got to satisfy the people who will satisfy the customer. That comes under the heading of duh.
1: Right. <laughs> and you know what's so interesting, Tom, is that we have been certain segment of uh, population have been saying this kind of thing for years, but it's our contention, Morag's and I, that now you have to pay attention to this stuff if you're going to survive. Yep. But I want to ask you, Tom. We're we're coming to the last three minutes of our show, and going you know, to want to give you a couple of minutes to plug your book. But you you talk about markets that everybody seems to be missing. Can you give us a little insight into that, or what what are the markets that you see people?
3: Well, there are two two biggies, and yeah. uh, it won't take the full three minutes because I've covered the first one. The first one is the women's market. Right. And I think that is true in so many areas. Sometimes we are a lot better than we were. Uh, but there is a long, long way to go. And again, the reason is, as, as I like to put it, women don't buy things. Women buy everything. But the second one, which actually overlaps with the women's market, but the second one that might be even more important and the americans with their youth fetish are the worst in the world is me that is the old people and again my one liner which is darn near true is we don't have the money we have all the money yeah. and you know there there's there's a two statistics that are interesting uh, one of them is if you compare Those who are age 18 to 35 with those who are 65 and above, the 65 and above have net worth, listen to the number, that is 47 times higher than the youth. As I like to say jokingly, why is everybody interested in the millennial market, millennials market? They have a lot of people, but they don't have any money. And, you know, it's it's obviously, well, here's the other number that I love for two reasons. Men do something convenient relative to women. We die earlier. And secondly, women are making enormous advances in the workplace, even if not into the CEO jobs at the rate we would like to. Given that, over the course of the next, I think it's five to six years, women will control in the United States alone, an additional $22 trillion worth of assets. You know, you a good friend of mine, Martha Barletta, Marty Barletta wrote a wonderful book called Primetime Women. And if you hook together this women's market thing that I'm obsessive about, and this older person's market thing together, boy, do you have a bundle of dynamite and a great opportunity and frankly, on the old folks' side, the marketers are even stupider than they are on the women's side. As Marty says, everybody in the world is you know, focused on the incredibly important 18 to 44-year-old demographic, but they ain't buying the stuff. It's, it's me.
1: Yeah, you know Tom, we're, we're coming to close of the. But you know what I love about you? your level of irreverence is just fabulous. I, I just, I just absolutely love it. Thank you so much for being with us. This has been great. And how do people tomorrow get a hold of your new book coming out? Which I am definitely getting a copy. Morag, I know you are, right? Sorry,
2: preloaded on my Kindle.
3: Fabulous. Good. I love that. Incidentally, for people who are listening, and this may make a difference to some people who've been to seminars of mine, I did read my own audio book this time you know, people say I'm loud and noisy. And so I thought maybe my voice would be better than a, than a professional's voice. Uh, the answer is I would, I would give an Amazon answer, but the reality is that's one of many places. I have some personal biases that says, say, go to an independent bookstore. My ex-wife's founded one. That was pretty good. Uh, so um, it's, it's available in stores everywhere, and I will not discriminate between any kinds of store. Any bookseller who wants to sell my book is my best friend. Uh, and, you know, the only closing word is make sure you buy one for your friends.
2: Thank you. Love that strategy. Morag, last word? Uh, no, I just enjoyed the conversation and words of wisdom as ever the future of work is not tomorrow the future of work is today or tomorrow if you're ordering the book but get (laughs) your book
3: thank you, well done
1: (laughs) thank you very much Tom it was just a pleasure having you on and it was just a pleasure to meet you personally
3: well it was a great pleasure to be with you all and I really appreciate the chance to be here so take care, raise
0: hell and uh, (laughs) off we go (laughs) okay thanks This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.